Good day to you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Film Focus, episode 103, Disturbing Films. Gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Film Focus. I'm your host, the Hypers 55, and I'm glad you decided to join me once again for some film-related discussion. And today we have a very interesting topic, one that I've wanted to cover for, I'd say at least, possibly around a year now since I made that mental note on it. And um, I've wanted to have a guest on just to discuss it. And luckily, I was able to bring out of the woodwork one of my favorite people who I've had the pleasure of knowing for about I'd say about, what, three years now? Yeah, I think about three years. He's the wonderful Ross. Ross, would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? <clears throat> Thanks for having me on the show, Kurt. Um, yeah, you know, my name's Ross, as established. Um, I'm an aspiring film editor myself, um, also a bit of a horror nut, uh, hence um, rather fitting for today's topic, um, which um, you know, I'll let Kurt elaborate on a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> our topic of conversation today is disturbing films now mm. while this isn't like you know entirely dedicated to the horror like you know is it psychological like you know thriller slash horror genres the topic of conversation today does sort of pertain to that sort of genre in a few ways so me and ross were thinking about it just the best way to try and present these films and we decided to come up with four films of our own that personally sort of affected us in a certain type of way mm. and we have a um, sort of way for us to link both films and have a subject matter of said films that we wanted to discuss. So we have four yeah. films that we'll sort of like um, talk about, some that actually sort of bleed into each other. So it'll probably be a pretty interesting discussion. This will be like, you know, fairly laid back, nice little like, you know, was it what? <laughs> I say nice, but like, you know, the subject matter is anything but... Um, yeah, we we got to present it, um, you know, in a chill way if we can, given what we'll be talking about, I suppose. <laughs> oh, no, definitely. Um, There were a number of films that I thought about covering for this, but there was a few that specifically came to mind, some that I haven't rewatched in a long time that I really wanted to talk about. So, yeah, this will be an interesting time. So, uh, so. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to uh, sit back and relax and uh, hopefully enjoy the soothing sounds of, like, you know, Kurt and Ross. <laughs> soothing sounds of us uh, discussing abhorrent material, so, you know, <laughs> do with that what you will. <laughs> All right, then, so the first film will be in Ross's department, so if you'd like to yes. talk about the film, sir. So, uh, this is a film that I saw earlier this year, back when, you know, cinemas were still a thing. Um <laughs> You know, uh, not going to go there. That's a whole other you know, horrific rabbit hole we could oh, discuss. Yeah, so yeah, we'll, we'll keep it to, you know, certain certain types of horror. Um, though, truth be told, uh, this one, you know, the film in question is one that addresses very real horrors that um, in some ways have sort of become uh, more, more relevant in the past few months. Um, because so the film is uh, called The Nightingale. For those of you who don't know, it's uh, the second feature film from Jennifer Kent, who uh, she directed The Barbadook, 
which is you know came out in 2014 it's one of my favorite modern horror films i have to say i think it was very atmospheric um very creepy very disturbing very clever as well you know the way it, the way it sort of blurred the line between you know psychological and supernatural stuff um yeah really good but Duck is not what we're discussing today nightingale is because i mean Duck is disturbing in its own way but the nightingale is more so because it's very very real like the, the nightingale is horrific but it you know unlike the Duck, it is not a strict horror film truth be told it is it's a historical drama at its core but also draws very heavily on like a lot of 70s exploitation films in particular the so-called uh, rape revenge subgenre which is you know it's it's a tough one uh, <laughs> of course and uh, and yeah the nightingale you know obviously jennifer kent um being from Australia, the specific period of history she addresses in The Nightingale is Australia and various colonies. I think technically it's set in Tasmania, um, but don't hold me to that. Um, <laughs> set there during uh, British colonialism during the 1800s. Yeah. And, you know, everything that that w- implies and entails. And, you know, our protagonist is. Uh, is an Irish settler uh, called Claire, who is, you know, has obviously kind of been being kept at a penal colony, colony, and um, and yeah, she undergoes some horrific treatment at the hands of uh, you know the the British soldiers, and ultimately, you know, sets out for you know her own revenge quest uh, with the aid of a local Aborigine man who has also been subjected to know abhorrent things from from these guys and it's uh yeah and particularly in like in light of uh you know a lot of the other stuff that's gone down this year you know people have been i've seen campaigns online on twitter and and so on and uh even like a couple of petitions on like change.org you know to address colonialism and topics like that more so in the british school syllabus you know we brits we sort of we we love to sort of point the finger at America and go, oh, they're the only racist ones. It's like, no, no, I mean, we've done some pretty horrible stuff too. And uh, and um, The Nightingale, it's not a film that I could ever see myself watching again, but it is one that's absolutely worth watching uh, because, you know, it is, I mean, objectively speaking, the film, the filmmaking craft is near flawless, really. I can't fault it on that level in the slightest. The acting is pitch perfect, naturalistic, realistic. It's wonderfully shot. The pacing is slow, but it works for the for the kind of film it is, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, like I say, it's just a very well crafted film, and also very historically important. You know, I would I would argue it's, you know, know what you're getting into if you go to watch The Nightingale. Is is what I will say. You know, it's. Put it this way, it's the only film I've seen in the cinema where someone has run out crying in the first 15 minutes. So, damn. Yeah. That's so, state. it is um, not unwarranted, to be honest. It's, um, you know, the, the film doesn't waste any time, you know, sh- you know, showing you the kind of content you'll be subjected to. But it's both the content and the context, I think, that make the film simultaneously very disturbing and very powerful and by extension you know 
as I said, tough to watch, but absolutely worth watching, which incidentally, I believe was, um, was our first main point, which lead on to film two, which, yeah, that's your department, I believe. <laughs> Ooh, very nicely done. I think you, uh, would have like a really good career in podcasting, man. You're very smooth. Um, it's my first time at it, so um, yeah. If I if I'm a little if I'm a little clunky, I apologise to. Oh no, like I'm, I'm sure the viewers will be much very fine with like the way in which you're handling it. Like you know, you might okay. probably have a job. Um, all right. So as Ross said, like um, his film pretty much leads pretty well into mine. The 1997 animated film from director Satoshi Kon, Perfect Blue. Now, Perfect Blue for me was one of those sort of films that. I was aware of. I'd seen plenty of posters of it, especially as um, as an anime fan who had been watching films for a while, but never really dived into it. Once I met my two friends from college, they really introduced me into the world of like you know anime in terms of stuff just beyond the standard shonen stuff that I've been watching before. There was a lot more um, yeah. different genres and like you know more adult related things. So through them, I ended up watching stuff like. Um, Ghost in the Shell and Neon Genesis Evangelion and all this other sort of material. Ghost in the Shell is still one of my favorites on a side note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've been meaning to rewatch that one as well for a while. But um, the uh, thing about uh, Perfect Blue, I believe, ended up watching that at college, I think. And I remember watching it for the first time, and it disturbed me in a way that not many films can. And sure. for the longest time, I just said, I can't do this again. Um, <laughs> And from there, because my friend was a big fan of Satoshi Kon's work, I ended up watching a good few of his other films. So films like Paprika, Millennium Actress, um, Memories, and Tokyo Godfathers were like a number of the films that I saw afterwards. And those deal with some some similar subject matter. But like you can <clears> tell, whenever you're watching a Satoshi Kon film, some of the things to do with the characters and tone um, and otherworldly, crazy, uh, creative material it's really like stuff that you can see that emulates from him and perfect blue has been like lauded as one of these like really great films and there's no um and you can understand why this is oh yeah absolutely (laughs) it's a very well crafted film with a haunting story and really good animation for something made in the late 90s it has a surprising amount of movement like uh, it's very free-flowing the art direction is really solid it has some really good lighting and um it also just helps, like, you know, was it um, elevate the story as well, because you have these um, characters dealing in, like, um, all these very dark and mysterious and twisted kind of material. And you can see these sort of, like, uh, elements where the line between, like, reality and fiction sort of, like, you know, either blend together or, like, you know, sort of separate. And the visual imagery, along with the story and the music, it all coalesces in this really interesting way. And the story itself has just this really good sense of disorientation and misdirection. And seeing it the second time round is even more interesting because there's a lot of foreshadowing that's put in place that, as for me, someone who's a little, like, you know, slow with certain, like, um, reveals or certain things that people said, oh, I saw that coming. I'm normally a little slow in that department. Hmm. Seeing the film a second time round, especially, it's just like the amount of seeds that are planted or certain Attention characters. detail, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the um, subtlety, especially with the story and some of the character stuff as well. You can see those seeds are placed and where the film, you expect it to zig, it'll zag. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's some really good stuff. I like the um, themes related to identity, one's mental state 
and like you know again right in that line between like uh fiction and reality um, it's it's interesting how the film tackles that too because it is it's very late 90s in, in yeah, some yeah. ways you know it, it you know, and how it addresses, you know, the internet and blogs, which at the time were obviously quite a fresh, new, exciting thing. Oh, yeah, so yeah. in that respect, it's a little bit dated. But in other ways, honestly, it's kind of more relevant than ever. Because, mm-hmm. because you know, the, the notion that, you know, particularly, you know, celebrities and obviously, you know, that the film centers around, um, you know, a sort of a pop singer turned actress and forget her name. Um, oh my gosh i literally just lost it uh, mima yeah mima. mima that's it yeah so she is a celebrity and um pretty much all celebrities or most notable ones now i think you know will have a brand online and i mean even the ones that you know don't particularly want to you know are eventually kind of coerced into getting one by you know their agent or a studio or something like i i heard somewhere i don't know how true this is that the only reason jake jim hall got an instagram um is because um obviously after he was cast as mysterio in spider-man far from home disney were like you need a social media presence so (laughs) which Again, that's, I'm not, you know, saying that's definitely true, but um, it wouldn't surprise me, put it that way. Um, yeah. So yeah, like the whole, the whole thing about, you know, like particularly celebrities' identities sort of being defined uh, in the public eye, at least by their online presence, is even more relevant now than it was in '97, I would argue. And I think, in that sense, it's kind of a I don't want to say a prophetic film, but like it's it was definitely ahead of its time in some ways. Oh no, definitely. Like um, life is hard for like you know is it everybody in some way, shape, or form, and like you know especially for entertainers, like it's rarely ever registered outside of like certain news stories or like certain documentaries where you really get to dive into like those kind of characters. Yeah, yeah. But this film really does present like you know was it the difficulties of like. Uh, being an entertainer but also not being relevant after a certain period of time so you have to adapt to like you know was it a different format and you know that this may not be like you know is it something that you want to do personally but Mm -hmm. it's the only way for you to like you know is it stay relevant and move on because otherwise like everything could basically go to crap because this is not only you involved but you've got like you know was it your agency like you know is it other people looking out for you and it's such a um, interesting, like, you know, juggling act that, like, you know, Mima has to deal with in this film. And- oh, yeah. And of course, you know, you have people in throughout the film sort of like getting angsty at her because they don't want her to, you know, change the squeaky clean pop star image she's crafted. And it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's like suddenly she goes from that to doing pretty hardcore scenes in, in, in like a gritty TV crime drama. Yeah, in the first one, doesn't she just show up as like a corpse in one shot? And mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. then obviously, you know, the the tougher one still is, um, you know, weirdly relevant to the Barbadook. Uh, there's you know a, a simulated uh, sexual assault scene, which um, simulated or not, it's um, still pretty tough. And uh, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> And um, again, like uh, just seeing like uh, the psychological warfare that Mima's put through through the course of the film, the fact that like she gets so disoriented and like, you know, it loses track of like, you know, what's happening and the way in which the film displays that with uh, certain scenes taking place. But then like, you know, is it you're in the past and you're in the present again, but you're not quite sure where this and that is. Um, And of course, it's implied that, you know, a lot of the scenes she's done, particularly that one in particular, 
kind of traumatized her, which which obviously kind of leads to her psychological breakdown throughout the film. Yeah, yeah, and it's just um, it's a tough watch, man. Like yeah. you know, it's just. <laughs> I mean, I, I love like I I only saw it quite recently myself. I only saw it, I want to say. I want to say two or three months ago. I'm not entirely sure. If mm. this year's taught me anything, it's that time isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But um, round about then, anyway. And uh, but yeah, I I was just immediately taken with it. You know, it, again, it, it's one that had been on my watch list for a while. And and yeah, it's I don't I don't know. There is there is just something about i def I'd like i've only seen one other satoshi con film and that's tokyo godfathers but i've heard great things about paprika you know i've heard that that's basically the inspiration for inception yeah, in many yeah, ways definitely. yeah um and uh yeah hollywood ha- seems to have a bit of a history of ripping off anime but that's another <laughs> that's another Ooh, podcast yeah. topic for another time might um, put that one in the docket for a while later yeah. on <laughs> but uh but yeah Sorry, I forgot the point I was going to make. Um, but yeah, no, I was just immediately taken with this film and just the way it breaks the character down and and, and the way it kind of, again, simultaneously very late 90s and, you know, kind of more relevant than ever. And the questions it raises about celebrities and, you know, you know it does, you know, th- this kind of constant monitoring in the public eye actually does it impact them in their personal lives and their, and their mental state, you know, probably. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And um, it's one of those sort of things that I guess, like, not enough people ask the question just because, like, you know, they're more preoccupied uh, with just, like, I guess the public display image of, like, said yeah. person. But then, obviously, there's the stuff that happens behind the scenes. And, yeah, this film just presents it in a really, like, you know, was it fascinating and, like, an intriguing mm-hmm. manner. Yeah, it's just really solid. If you haven't seen it, I'd say give it a watch. It's, it's a tough one, but it's definitely worth watching. Absolutely. Yeah, I would also cite it as an example of films to show to anyone who is convinced that animation is for kids and kids alone. It's like, no, it's not. No. Like, <laughs> yeah, do, do I can I can line up a few that disprove that. Um, Perfect Blue is definitely up there. Uh, Waltz with Bashir would be another one. Oh, great choice. Yeah. Uh, what else? Got a few in my head. I mean, some of the darker Ghibli films, to be fair, like Princess Mononoke, although it's mm. although it's only PG, like it, it's pretty like dark and mythology heavy yeah. when it, and violent when it wants to be. Oh no, definitely. Yeah, yeah. no, there's there's some quality animation out there that you know is geared just as much for adult audiences as you know other, and you know no disrespect to um, you know animated films that appeal to you know families too you know you know you look look like the lion king and you know og obviously and into the spider verse are both among my favorites of all time but yeah yeah animation as a medium for adults is definitely kind of an underappreciated niche and i think perfect blue could help with that a lot <laughs> oh definitely all right i'd say like let's uh, move on to your next film ross because i believe yeah. that ties in closely to um well is it either my one or your one or is it i think i think i think it was yours i believe because yeah because uh, yeah i mean perfect blue like to to refer back to my uh previous point about you know hollywood ripping off uh anime a lot um apparently indie filmmakers do it too because um perfect blue at this point at this point it's no secret that it heavily influenced uh, the films of darren aronofsky and um 
at one point he i know he wanted to just straight up do a live action remake of it and after that project fell through he integrated a lot of it into his later work um i think i think he even paid for the rights to for it in, in some respects uh yeah black swan obviously uh in 2010 you know draws on very similar themes of you know fractured psychosis and the pressures of fame and performing artists and so on but the big one which i believe you were going to cover is requiem for a dream and that's you know the bathtub scene in that where jennifer connelly screams into the water direct homage to perfect blue yeah yeah and it's 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 not even ambiguous about it which you know fair play it's a powerful scene to to emulate and yeah a lot more powerful content in Requiem for a Dream 2 which I'll I'll let you elaborate on (laughs) yeah oh gosh Requiem for a Dream one of those sort of films that the first time I watched it I caught it on TV I think back in I want to say maybe 2010 I want to say and um I was just like oh okay I am aware of Mr. Aronofsky I think I only watched it because uh, this was just before Black Swan had come out, but after right. The Wrestler. So I'd heard a lot about him, but I'd never seen any of his films. So I was like, okay, let me check this out. And good gravy, that film literally took the wind out of my cells and, like, you know, punched me in the <laughs> gut. I was literally just sat there for at least a good solid 20 to 30 minutes just trying to process what I watched because by the end of that film, I considered it like an emotionally draining experience. I had nothing left to give. I'll second that. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, so... It's um, maybe the most effective anti-drugs PSA ever made. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt, man. Um, Upon rewatching it the second time round, there was a lot of details that I missed the first time including the fact that this was actually my first Jared Leto movie. I totally forgot that he was in there, but I guess it's just because I didn't recognize his face. So um, your first two of interest. Oh, right. This so is I 2010. Would... So this is pre-suicide score. So I'm glad that yeah. wasn't your introduction. To <laughs> no, no, no. So I believe it was this. And I think was it Dallas Buyers Club? I want to say yeah. came beforehand. So that was my first introduction to him, but I must have just forgotten about his face in this film because he's so much younger and smoother. Um true, true. And yeah. Marlon Wayne's as well, like in pretty oh, yeah. one of his only super dramatic roles because after this he literally just started doing all those spoof and parody movies and it's just like, dude, you you're better than this man. Come on. He's now. got some acting weight behind him. Like he could he could have been in some good shit. I mean, yeah. I know he was apparently in talks to be to be Robin in one of like the '90s Batman movies at one point, which would have been interesting, you know. Mm. I'm sh- you know, if if Requiem for a Dream is anything to go by, you know, he could, he could sell emotional weight if they got into, you know, Dick Grayson's backstory. So, yeah, yeah. But I, mean, um, I could go down a whole other Batman tangent. <laughs> we want to stay on track, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Requiem for a Dream, like, um, just involves these four individuals who have, like, you know, was it a plan, a course of action to, like, uh, basically sort of, they have an end goal essentially that they believe will, like, you know, was it sort out their lives, but they essentially yeah yeah except um they all go about it in pretty much the wrong ways and we pretty much see their descent into like you know was it despair with some people getting like you know was it hit a lot worse than others (sighs) it's debatable who has it the worst though by the end of the film i would say like uh you know their circumstances are very different but 
And like they they no spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Requiem Dream, no one comes out of it okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean like um <sighs> I'm not even sure where you'd begin because um I feel bad because I've forgotten a lot of the people's names, so I'm normally referring to them as like by their actor names instead. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll, be, I'll be doing the same, if we're told. So I remember Sarah Goldfarb, um, who's um, Ellen Burstyn's character, because yeah. she just broke my goddamn heart. <laughs> oh, man. I, you know what? We'll start with her because, like, you know, Sarah's, like, you know, whole thing is just pure heartbreak for me. Mm the poor lady like you know was it she's lost her husband she has a son and that's all that she has he he's a little crap and you know is it he keeps trying to like sell the tv and he deals in drugs um and sells the tv so he can afford his own uh, supply of heroin if i yeah. remember, remember right yeah pretty much and that's the opening scene of the film isn't it like mm. that's the tone <laughs> yeah and i'm just like when she has that conversation with him, just saying that, like, you know, was it, she's essentially lonely and she just wants to, like, you know, was it be noticed and, like, you know, just uh, feel love. I'm just like, I wanted to hug her so badly. I'm just like, lady. Yeah, and the scene where she starts to die and, like, you know, she's just down to having, like, uh, her first few meals. I'm like, I know what that's like as a uni student who, like, you know, had no money for a while. Mm. Like, and you're literally just eating whatever scraps you have. It's just like oh, the way in which that film perfectly illustrates the slow movement of time and like, you know, yeah. it, that need to like, you know, was it just feel that hole of like, you know, was it what you feel like you need, but you can't do it. Oh, the film just plays with you in that sort of way where it's just like the music, the camera work as well. And the edit. One of my favorite scores ever, like, uh, like Clint Mansell is a, is a composing god and he does not get enough credit <laughs> it is perfectly choreographed and elevates everything in that film by 100 the only like you know the asterisks i'll put against that is because that main theme has been utilized everywhere oh, i yeah. can't i can't listen to it in the same way especially one of my old friends from college he was obsessed mm. with that music to the point where i think he overplayed it a lot at uni and that sort of contributed to my like you know was it I appreciate this, but I can't listen to it anymore because it actually frustrates me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird disconnect, isn't it? Like, like you know, it is objectively it's wonderful, and uh, but through overuse, it's just like ugh, you know to to uh, to briefly touch on uh, that that like my almost Batman tangent earlier. It's like every time you know a new YouTube video essay comes out explaining why the Dark Knight's a masterpiece, I, I kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, yeah, it, it, we know it's great, but like there are other, there's other great comic book media we can talk about. <laughs> oh man, I'll have to get you back for that discussion later on because yeah. I have many things I could say about that myself. Um, um, but yeah, I was. I also find it perplexing with the score for Requiem for a Dream, like that they didn't. Was it like the X Factor or Britain's Got Talent used used like the kind of you know epic version of it? Yes. Uh, and it, it's, yes, they it's do. like so. Yeah, you know, I mean, say what you will about those shows and reality TV in general, but but it's like you know, for what's supposed to be, you know, presenting a very kind of triumphant, up, uplifting moment, it's like, yeah, do you really want to use? the theme from a film about people spiraling into addiction and despair 
Like, I don't, I don't think you're setting the right tone there somehow. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, Sarah, like, once she starts taking the pills and she's uh, adjusting to it and then just starts taking, like, you know, different dosages. Mm. And I was like, no, lady, no. And just the way it affects do her. It. <laughs> and the fridge, Christ. Oh, that oh, fridge freaked me the fuck out. <laughs> um, watching that with headphones, like, um, the way in which the sound is emphasized whenever that thing just jolts i'm like please stop it i can't take it man and the way in which everything just sort of falls apart when she starts having that like uh, moment where the game show sort of like you know bleeds into a real world the house is being taken apart like a set the camera's all up in her face and the Bloody Very fr- similar to Perfect Blue, I suppose. You know, she can't yeah. distinguish reality and media and fantasy anymore. <laughs> yeah, I watched both of those films pretty recently, back to back as well. So, like the um... Jesus, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> it it was just like, oh no, this is Sarah all over again. I can't take me. No, um, no. But yeah, just everything that happens to her from that point to when she's like, you know running through the street trying to go to like the buildings like saying that she's supposed to be on television she gets taken to like was it the psych ward and they give her electrotherapy and i'm like you poor lady oh my god and the way in which those um her like uh i guess handlers or like you know was it just throwing her around they're just so uncaring it's just like obviously a job but just the way in which they're like you know trying to force feed her or like you know move her around i'm like oh god man she's a human being christ yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really know what you know those kind of institutes are like now, but I know they've got a history of, uh, you know, I mean, electroshock in particular has been is very controversial for good reason. You know, it's uh, I'm not a like professional mental health worker, so I'm not really qualified to talk about it. In yeah, yeah. <laughs> sense, but it's yeah, like it, it's scary, honestly, when the film gets to that point. And of course, again, with the editing, you know, it's kind of. I think just the last half hour or so of the film is just kind of relentlessly parallel cutting between these four different characters and, you know, what they're doing and, you know, how they're trying to achieve what is a complete pipe dream at this point because they've just dug themselves too far down, like trying to get back out and just... But, like, you just know, like, even before, like that a heartbreaking kind of final sequence like the last sort of five minutes or so of the film like you know that like this can't end well for any of them you know i believe it's marion jennifer connelly's character um yeah. she um heads down there the route of prostitution uh, which is and yeah <laughs> that's heartbreaking because like um you can see that her and like uh jared lair like you know is they they really do have a bond like, you know, is oh, it yeah. under different circumstances, they probably could have made a pretty good, like, you know, is it couple in life together? Because um, she ha- clearly has ambition to go about and, like, uh, get into, like, fashion. And mm. her work looked pretty good. But because she unfortunately, like, you know, hooked up with Leo during this period where they're into drugs and she got addicted to the point where, like, you know, was it she needs a score that badly that she'll call yeah. up... Um, Oh, Mr. Keith David and like you know was it like you know oh yeah it's Keith David isn't it man I love Keith David like I, I wish he wasn't such a deplorable piece of shit in this film. I know <laughs> I mean 
I, this was might the, need to watch like I don't know, rewatch some John Carpenter movies after it to cleanse mm. my palate. Like, there's some Keith David characters I like. I know because <laughs> I think I must have. Um, this was like the first sort of I guess sinister like role I'd seen Keith David, mm. and I'm just like, oh no, not you. I like you. No. I um, mean, he's played villainous characters before. You know, he's one of my favorite Disney villains in prison. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He, he was, gets his own song in that. You know, dude can sing pretty well. Oh no. But, you know substantial difference between a disney villain and this kind of villain yeah this was uh, just like i think just the most uh at least live action like super sinister like i i can't even look at you like it just makes your skin crawl like yeah and just the end situation that like marion finds herself in just up just like ass to ass yeah and i'm just like and there's all these guys and i'm just like yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this is sort of like one of those sort of things that certain rich, like, you know, was it guys would probably do in certain like underground circles. Oh, the rich elite absolutely indulge in that kind of stuff. Like, I'm, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> as for like, you know, was it Leo? Like, I almost forgot. I literally just about like, you know, almost forgot until a certain point of the film where I saw that little bump on his arm like, oh no, I remember oh, what that's going to turn into. Uh, the gangrenous arm, yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> and when they're in the car and he, start, he decides to stick the needle back in there and the close-up on it, I'm like, oh, cryvity. I haven't cringed that much since um, watching 127 Hours and watching like um, what James Franco ended up having to do in that film. <laughs> Yeah, we'll avoid spoilers for that one. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, if like, you know the real life story of Aaron, what's his face? You know what happens. But again, <laughs> we got to keep on track. Yeah, I mean, by the end of that film, I'm like, this guy, he clearly likes this girl. But him and like, you know, was it Mr. Wayne's just had like, you know, the wrong plan from the start, and they sort yeah. of like screw themselves up. They just the- fell into total codependency and self destruction, and it just. It was a total pipe dream, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and just to touch on, like, uh, Wayne's as the last guy, like, um, I almost forgot when he was uh, in the car with those guys and they said, oh, yeah, we want to promote you. And it's just like, yo, you look, you got, like, a white driver and then bang. I forgot, like, you know, was it, I shouldn't be as surprised because obviously, like, when dealing with certain drug deals, like, uh, secret attacks are prone to happen. Oh, yeah. Um, but just the way in which that whole thing goes down, and then how they keep trying to get drugs, but that still doesn't work out. And he has that whole thing with his mother as well. Yeah. In a way, like, again, it's debatable who has it the worst, who I f- feel the most bad for by the end of the film. But in some ways, a case could be made for for, for Wayne's character, because at least with... Um, and again, like, this is not to trivialise the suffering that any of these people undergo. but But, like... You know, with, with with Sarah, you know, Sarah Goldfarb, as much as, you know, she, as we established, you know, it, her story completely heartbreaking and horrific, you know, she is so far gone by the end of the film that she's kind of trapped in her own fantasy world. And, mm. you know, in a sense, she's kind of living in blissful ignorance. Definitely not a good thing in its own way. But it's like you compare that with um, with Wayne's character, who is he is fully aware of his situation. And, you know, when he just curls up on that prison bed, you just, ugh, absolute punch to the gut. <laughs> yeah, man, it's just, um, I forgot that he was just in an area surrounded full of white guys, and I was just like, mm. oh, oh, this is this kind of situation. And considering, right. like, you know, sort of what's been happening in the world recently, I was course, just like, yeah. 
oh gosh this is a little too relevant for me right now oh no good yeah yeah it's uh, yeah it's again again you know it's like like i mentioned with the nightingale earlier it's like you know suddenly uh you know addressing colonialism as a period of history suddenly Mm. suddenly became in like the past few months became a little more important so oh no definitely (laughs) i mean like um if there's ever a time to try and like you know what's it rejigger like you know is the education system so like you know everyone has like a uh, a better understanding of what history actually is now would be the time completely completely and yeah you, you just end Requiem for a Dream just feeling like absolute garbage. Just feeling, yeah, man. Just, just, just feeling awful for everyone. Like, like, you know, okay, they're not necessarily people to be admired. You know, they've made some pretty awful decisions and kind of screwed each other over in a lot of respects. But it's like, man, do they deserve that? <laughs> you know? Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, just completely deflated. And I would recommend if you ever watch this film, please watch something pleasant afterwards. Just to, oh you know, yeah, I didn't the first time, and I regret that because I think I went straight to sleep afterwards, and I'm just like, I didn't. I did the same. No, not not, <laughs> not not a wise move. Like spend at least an hour like just looking at pictures of puppies or something. <laughs> yeah, the the internet like you know is a lot nicer now than it was back then. Like you know was it well. In, these, in terms of finding things that you like, <laughs> if you know where to look. Yeah. Um, all right, okay, Like, let's move on to the next film, and I want you to start your search. Sure, sure. So, yeah, um, a film that leaves you with a similar mood to Requiem for a Dream, I suppose, where you just feel awful for the characters involved. Um, so this is um, one that is on Netflix. Um, you guys can check it out if you're emotionally and mentally prepared for it. It's called Climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a French film uh, directed by Gaspar Noe. It is to date the only film of his I've watched. I should preface this. I've heard that his other films, um, notably Irreversible, are more hardcore than Climax. Irreversible is particularly notorious for a couple of scenes in particular. But Climax, yeah, it's... I've heard that it's quite tame by his standards, but it, uh, if that's the case, then I don't know if I'm ready for the rest of his filmography. <laughs> it's... I think it's sort of after the halfway point, the film is just a perpetual, similar to Requiem for a Dream, it's just kind of a perpetual spiral into just debauchery. And debauchery is not even the right way to phrase it, because debauchery makes it, you know, it it implies that there's... I mean, I guess there is partying going going on in the film, but it's, you know, it gets... To say it gets off the rails is the understatement of the decade, really. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. But, again, it's a film... You're not really sure where to describe where to start describing it, but it also deals with drugs. Um, you know, I will say um, less heroin and more uh, just really, really bad acid in, in, oh God. in, in, uh, in this case. And basically... It's a supposedly based on true events that took place in like the late 90s in France somewhere. I don't know how closely it follows what happened, but basically you've got a group of young dancers who are kind of, you know, who are all in a building together, um, you know, performing a routine, practicing for, I guess, some kind of tour they're going to go on. Yeah, yeah. And they finish their rehearsals and start partying and there's, and there's just this big punch bowl to the side, which they keep dipping into. And after a point, it's revealed that uh, someone has spiked said punch bowl with a particularly horrific strain of acid, LSD, whatever you want to call it. And 
yeah, things uh, things go south fast from there. It's um, and what what's also worth noting is like a lot of the actors in the film, I think, are actual professional dancers in real life. Um, you know, there are a few, quite a few non-actors involved. You know, who who so in that sense, you know, that lends it a certain level of authenticity, which in its own way, you know, makes it even tougher to, to stomach because yeah, it's like yeah it's it's just a lot and again it is very comparable to requiem for a dream after it hits a certain point in the story it just kind of keeps spiraling and doesn't stop and except for the last five minutes which are just kind of a moment of reflection on like yeah this is where everyone's at now and this is the state that everything's been left in right right yeah and i, I don't want to say too much um I mean, I, I, I guess, I don't know, I guess we've sort of been talking about Requiem for a Dream, you know, and Perfect Blue to an extent, kind of spoilers and all, but um, but Climax, I think it's one that you that you, that you do just kind of need to experience for yourself. Um, if you choose to, you know, it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea, <laughs> to, to put it mildly, but, um, or cup of um, LSD spiked sangria, if you will. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just... Uh, stylistically, you know, it, it's it's pretty stunning. Like the color palette is great. Um, so there there is kind of a perverse beauty to be found in certain scenes. Um, you know, uh, there's one in particular which I'd actually forgotten about until I rewatched it last week, which is one of the characters at one point in everyone's kind of collective trip. Uh, she just kind of goes into another room by herself and just stares at like this. I think it's a painting or a mural on the opposite wall, which is just like a, of a forest. She just kind of stares into that for a few seconds and then just kind of like flops backwards. The camera's been following her from behind. Uh, also worth noting, after a point, it's all kind of engineered to look like one take. So oh. that just kind of adds to the spiralling sensation that the film achieves. And and so, yeah, the camera's following her from behind and she just kind of like stays, stays standing on the spot but just kind of flops the top half of her body backwards and, and her arms just hang really limply and she just kind of stares into into the camera and just kind of starts kind of hysterically laughing. Uh, and I, I can't remember if she was screaming beforehand or if she starts screaming after that, but it's just just moments like that that are kind of... I mean, I mean it's, it's difficult to say, like, what kind of nails the feeling more whether it's like those little moments focused on one character or if it's the bigger moments like towards the end there's a point where like the camera's like it's swirling through like a bunch of people on the main floor all kinds of like bonkers stuff's happening like like you know what like one person's you know frothing at the mouth ODing a couple of other people are just having you know, very explicit rough sex of, uh, on the floor a few feet away from them. It's, uh, and it's, uh, at that point in the film, like the, like the, you know, the lighting is like this very deep red and, you know, the way it's kind of like the camera's swirling and goes upside down, it inverts. There are other people kind of standing up, like twisting, contorting their bodies. And at that point you feel like you're in Dante's Inferno, you know, <laughs> it's, as um you're in like some so dante's Inf inferno is that the right thing or dante 
Dante's a divine con the one that's about like the circles of hell. <laughs> yeah, I know which one you're referring yeah. to. Um... I think I think it's divine comedy. Mm. Um, whichever one it is, it's just like yeah, it's absolute kind of you know, they, they are in their own kind of personal hell at that point and that just you know, that just kind of hammers the point home. It's yeah, climax is a lot. Um I don't know if I'm ready to tackle Gaspar Noe's other films yet, but as said, you know, any of the listeners here, you know, if you've got a strong stomach, um, truth be told, you know, first half of the film is actually pretty fun in its own way um, before everything goes down. You know, there's some pretty wild and impressive, you know, group dance sequences going on. So they're very enjoyable in their own way. So if you want, just kind of watch the first sort of 40-ish minutes and and, and then just be like, OK, I'm just going to pretend the rest doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so so wow. that, that's also an option. Um I mean, again, you know, the filmmaking is, filmmaking craft is impressive. It's just, yeah, acquired taste, but, you know, worth checking out if it sounds like it might be, might be your bag in any capacity. Whatever that might say about myself or anyone else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man, I've been um, meaning to give that one a watch for a little while, because I remember when it was uh, coming out and within, like, you know, the film space and especially the indie space, there was a lot of people talking about it. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't get around to seeing it because there wasn't a big release for it in my local cinema. But from the reviews that I heard about it, they said it was very good, but very intense. So I, I'll, I'll eventually get around to it. I'll just, uh, I think I'll need some time after like my recent viewing experiences though. <laughs> yeah, no, just, you know, t- t- take a bit of breathing room, just watch some lighthearted, um, wholesome fare for, for a bit. <laughs> Um, all right, so now I'm going to move on to my next film. Okay. It's the main theme between us, I believe, was Atmosphere. Um, yeah. Do you remember correctly? So my film will be uh, 2018's uh, Annihilation. Now, mm-hmm. um, I remember uh, before this film came out, I was very hyped to see what was going on because uh, Alex Garland, like, you know, was it, he's pretty much a man who's, like, you know, come up from, like, you know, was it film writing to, like, you know, do his own, like, uh, directorial material. Yeah. And Ex Machina was one of my favorite films in 2015. And surprisingly enough, that released at the start of 2015, at least it did here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I expected it to be, like, you know, good but i didn't expect it to be as good as it was and it also features one of the most random yet wonderfully choreographed dance sequences in any film i've ever seen in my life (laughs) yeah that came out of nowhere and brought me much joy um (laughs) as if i the fucking dance (laughs) yeah (laughs) as if i didn't like oscar isaac enough but he just elevated my like you know that film elevated my love for him by like a extra chunk but what is he dances to is, is it um get oh what is it like get down saturday night or something yeah 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 um and that's like one of my uh that's one of the songs that like uh my uh parents like you know grew me up right. so i watched that i was like yo man i was watching out my dad's like yo you used to play that what's going on <laughs> um but yeah after watching that i was like you know what alex carlin you can do whatever you want now i'm very curious so i remember and apparently he took your advice <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so um watching annihilation um the first time round was an experience mm. that film uh, if I put it into one word, I would say fascinated me because oh. it had like a, an interesting concept that once it just kept going, the mystery and the intrigue, the tension and just 
unnervingness just kept going straight from the outset this film has like you know a tone that only like you know was it um increases and gets stronger like as these characters go from like you know was it okay so i didn't actually explain what the premise is uh to give the short version you have this uh meteorite that falls from like you know space down to earth and it creates this sort of like i wouldn't say force field but it creates this sort of sphere around an area which has caused some abnormalities in terms of like what's happening to the environment the wildlife and so on and so forth and numerous people have been sent in but they haven't come back so you have these group of specialist women who go in there to basically find out what's happening within this environment and like see if they can put a stop to it essentially the area is called the shimmer and within this you could call it like i don't know maybe like a pocket dimension of like you know Mm. super weird and interesting stuff like think about maybe your own sort of fantasy maybe video game like um environment with all sorts of crazy colorful and strange uh nature and animal stuff just absolutely bizarre horrifying wildlife (laughs) yeah the um the interesting thing about being within the area of the shimmer is that there's so much that could be done with just that section of the film alone oh yeah and it's I, i like the balance the film strikes too in terms of explaining you know what the shimmer is you know like like it's sort of it kind of explains enough to give you an idea of what's going on um kind of basically kind of dna splicing through the air effectively from what i remember and uh but at the same time it's, it's still vague enough to where like there is kind of an incomprehensible mystery to it it's like it's almost lovecraftian in that sense but not quite it kind of has its own spin on things oh no definitely there's almost like this um interesting ambiguity about the film that like you know as it plays throughout where it feels like a mixture of science and almost like uh magical fantasy based stuff yeah no i get that where you know you have the characters like you know is it some of them like uh are specific in like scientific fields like biology so they are explaining certain things that scientifically make sense to you but there's other things that you know even they can't comprehend and you can't but because of the way in which it's presented in the film, you sort of just go with it that there are certain things that are beyond human comprehension, essentially. And um, seeing how, as you go from the starting point of the shimmer to the uh, epicenter of it all, things just get super weird and funky and creepy. And, oh, I just... I've never. we... uh, Sorry, you you finish first. (laughs) Oh, right, yeah, just... uh, (laughs) It's just, uh, I remember watching that the first time in the daytime, and I was just like, oh, God. I watched it with my mom, and like she mm. was just she was just bemused, um, as was I. And Which is a fair reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and watching it the second time, it was easier, but still very tough. Now, oh, there yeah. is one scene in particular that, I think we're thinking of the same one. Are we going to talk about the bear scene? (laughs) Yeah, okay. So spoilers for, like, you know, is it Annihilation? Because this film, yeah, I'll put a a marker in, like, the description just in case you want to skip this part. So uh, obviously, um, listen on if you don't care about spoilers, but I'll put a spoiler tag in there just in case. But there is a scene, essentially, where one of the girls has been killed by a bear earlier on in the film, and we find her, and she's dead. So, like, okay, done. That's all done. Later on, the um, the remaining ladies end up in this house, and um, 
while like uh, they're being interrogated by one girl that's sort of losing like you know her uh, sanity we hear the former girl screaming out it's like but you're supposed to be dead but then you find out this weird bear creature is fused together into this horrible amalgamation of filth and the actual cry is not coming uh it's not coming from like the normal girl but like this fused bear creature filth and i'm like the way yeah, it's it's this oh. weird thing isn't it where doesn't it like whatever whatever its last you know victim or prey was you know it learns to kind of imitate their screams uh and yeah. it's just deeply it, unnerving like, like when that thing steps in it's it's got like this kind of half skull face as well so yeah it's it's mutated in some way hence you know the weird dna splicing shimmer thing and and yeah it just comes in it's just kind of like it just kind of lets out these noises that, kind of, that are kind of half bare or half this woman screams it's just ugh. oh gosh and it's um and i don't know if like you know is it you're familiar with full metal alchemist but like um I'm not personally, but yeah. go ahead. <laughs> but essentially, in like the early portion of the series, there is um, this girl and her dog, and like you know, what's it? There is um, alchemy that's done in that series, and something goes okay. wrong, and the dog and the girl end up fused together in this weird sort of hybrid, and uh. it talks because obviously the Japanese voices are very expressive in the way in which they uh, say certain things. This dog girl hybrid is like, you know, was it uh, talking about her daddy and the way in which it said has creeped me out for the rest of my life. And this <laughs> and this thing gave me the worst kind of flashback because it was a very similar thing of like, you know, right. two separate species fused together and then speaking. That absolutely should not be fused together. <laughs> yes. And it's just like, oh, God, I I died because the problem was in Annihilation. This weird bear hybrid thing is right up next door to these girls who are tied up crying out this weird like raw slash voice thing human voice and it's it was deeply unnerving and just oh, yeah. in that kind of situation myself i'm like obviously you can't move because you move and you're dead but like good lord i have never felt so uncomfortable in a film for a while I'm like oh please end <laughs> it, it was intense like that's i mean i think annihilation it's generally classed more as sci-fi than horror yeah uh, but that's one of like the best horror sequences of the past few years like that scene alone is masterfully intense and uncomfortable like, yeah definitely <laughs> so as the film goes on and then you uh see the character start to uncover like what the shimmer actually does to people and um how it affects their like you know is it physical like you know body and dna like the moment where they watch the videotape and like oscar isaac cuts that dude open and you can see like i guess it's his intestines all swimming around and stuff yeah and he puts his hand in there i'm like oh christ <laughs> i was like what is happening i felt so uncomfortable and the film just from there just continues to present more creepy and strange imagery like uh certain like you know people that are like you know died but fused into the walls the human looking like you know was it uh plant like trees tessa thompson becomes one of them at one point and i'm like oh no not tessa no i know i, I mean the spectacled scientist tessa thompson you know it's yeah she was a welcome presence in the film for yeah. quite a while um to i will say but uh 
Yeah, no, she and she she just turns into a tree because mm. that's the kind of movie we're watching. <laughs> it was interesting though. Um, the albino the... crocodile as well. That was an interesting oh, one. Yeah, with yeah. Shark teeth. <laughs> oh, definitely. I was looking at those teeth and I'm like, good lord. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of interesting sort of oohs and ahs, but sort of like oh and ah going on in the film as yeah. well. Um, and again, in ways that are kind of almost comprehensible, but not quite, which I think is a very fine line that the film treads quite well you know yeah. sort of explaining enough so you've got a rough idea of what's going on but you know not revealing everything yeah so by the end of that film i had questions but not in that way where i felt unsatisfied with what i watched it was more so just like i'd love to have a conversation with uh, other like you know was it people who have seen this who i guess are like like-minded film fans to ascertain like what they thought this means or what this was because sure yeah when um, uh, Natalie Portman's character goes into the epicenter in the lighthouse and that whole weird acid trip of a weird glowy thing starts happening with that crazy music and then we get the weird mimic like creature thing that reminds me of like I think it's the alien from the day the earth is still at least I think that's the the one I'm yeah, I see in comparison it. to yeah and seeing how that thing mirrors our movements and the unsettling music and when she tricks that thing into blowing itself up, but then she comes back and meets up with Oscar Isaac and they're literally just like, are you you and are you me? And they're sort of just like, they're not sure. Like obviously Oscar Isaac's character is technically, I guess, a clone, but then you see that she's got something going on with her. So has her <coughs> DNA been altered and been like, you know, has she taken something from the shimmer with her into the real world? Is this just a lot? It's just a lot of questions because obviously the main sort of shimmer area sort of breaks down once she blows that thing up and it sets the lighthouse on fire and everything sort of dissipates afterwards. But when that happens, I'm just wondering, okay, is it truly over or has the shimmer like DNA or whatever that thing is adapted into like, you know, her and taken itself through her and Oscar Isaac's character and they'll just, I don't know, continue to expand in the world that way? there's a lot of questions <laughs> a lot of lots and lots of those yeah and i don't have the answers i'm afraid <laughs> yeah but um to bring it back to the whole atmosphere thing just everything just feels very uneasy from the outset and only continues to get creepier darker and just just weirder just straight up yeah bizarre like yeah so now i want to ask you about what's your uh counter like film to mine okay so my pick for a film that has a perpetual eerie atmosphere that permeates everything one of my favorites of all time throwing back to a 90s classic and that is david finch's seven. Ooh, very nice yeah i mean seven is basically a classic at this point right you know it's sort of difficult to know where to start talking about it it's yeah. you know i but yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, I, know, I know there's obviously like the one scene in particular, uh, the sloth scene, which shows up on a lot of, you know, scariest movie moments lists and, you know, for good reason. Of course, <laughs> it, yeah. It's yeah. horrifying. Uh, but it's it not aside from that, like, you know, I mean, OK, that scene is somewhat of a jump scare, um, but, you know even before that you know just the atmosphere of just like dread and decay and filth and everything that's kind of been built up beforehand that you know and 
again, it permeates the entire film. And what I find interesting about Seven uh, is that it's a film that everyone remembers as being, you know, oh, it's really gnarly. It's really gruesome. It's really gory. It's like, if you actually watch it, like, it's not as graphic a film as you remember it being. Like, it's, you know, it's nasty in parts. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. But, like, there are way more overtly graphic films out there. You just remember Seven as being, it, it's it's almost like, you know, and I almost liken it to like the, you know the shower scene from the original Psycho, uh, mm. you, you know like like um, you know when Hitchcock showed that scene to you know a handful of censors, you know uh, a couple of them you know were convinced the first time round that they had seen you know some blood or a knife wound in Janet Leigh's body, or that they had seen you know nudity, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and and then showed them the, the scene again, and you know those two guys were like, oh actually you know no, there's nothing there. And the other censors who had previously said they hadn't seen a thing claimed that they were now seeing Gordon nudity <laughs> in the film. So it's, I mean, yeah, obviously, it's by virtue of being made in a time that was, you know, much more lenient with censorship uh, than, than Psycho, than, you know, the 1960s were for Psycho. It's, uh, you know, Seven is more overtly graphic at points, sure. But in a sense, it kind of takes a similar approach where, like, there's a lot of the power of suggestion. Yeah, definitely. Like, with, um, you know, one bit that I remember really got to me the first time I saw it is the uh, is the lust victim, um, which, um, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Seven, if you haven't, what are you doing? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's genuinely a masterpiece. Go watch it. Put a pin in that minor spoiler warning ahead so yeah seven is obviously you know john doe uh, the killer in that um played by real life uh, deplorable human kevin spacey <laughs> funny that um but um yeah like uh, john doe is uh he's a religiously motivated serial killer who bases each of his crimes and victims around one of the seven deadly sins and and so yeah each of them is you know somewhat themed to said sin you know the first victim to show up is gluttony where he basically restrains a man and forces him to eat himself to death and the lost victim is again you don't see much you you see very little in fact I, I think there's maybe like one shot where you can kind of see in soft focus like part of the victim in the background yeah. aside from that you just see like the image of the uh yeah, you know, to put it, I don't think there's a tactful way I can uh, describe it. So uh, where where you see a picture of the razor bladed strap on, yeah. uh, essentially, you know, John Doe infiltrates uh, a brothel and forces, you know, this guy to to wear said razor bladed strap on, whilst and to use it to, you know, to with the prostitute he's with. And it's like again, you don't need to see that to understand how absolutely awful that is you know afterwards you know detectives uh mills and somerset played by uh you know brad pitt and morgan freeman uh, respectively you know they're interrogating the guy um in, not not john doe this is you know earlier in the film before we're actually yeah. formally introduced to him they're interrogating uh you know the guy who was forced to wear you know the razor bladed strap on um you know in one of the police rooms and just the way 
the way he just he just describes it and the way you, you just see like the shock and the trauma on this guy's face and he's it's almost like as he's discussing it with them he comes to the realization of what he was forced to do yeah. and and yeah that that's just one example really like, like there are a few scenes in the film like that and it's there is just this atmosphere of just and again like it they often kind of relate it to you know the city that the film's set in which they keep it very vague i guess, I guess it's supposed to be a, a fictional city of some kind you know they always just kind of refer to it as this place or the city wherever it is it's it seems to be kind of perpetually gray and rainy and <laughs> and it is and seven kind of accidentally gave us like the the best uh gotham city that I, I don't think any other live action batman movie has given us um yeah but, but um but yeah and there is just kind of you know you, you get the sense of how bleak and crime-ridden and, and hopeless this place is and that from honestly from the opening scene that's kind of established and then you have the opening credits which um yeah super eerie and well done in their own way um you yeah, know. still can't forget them. <laughs> no, and, and of course, so many films afterwards tried to imitate them, cool. and just and just didn't quite make the cut. But um, it's difficult to know what else to say about Seven. It is just a phenomenal film, and it, it is pure film noir. Like it, it, it's you know, some people argue, you know, is it a horror film? In a in a sense, yeah. In course, certain yeah. scenes, yes. Yeah. Um, I see it more as just like the best neo-noir i've ever seen you know it's, it's about these two detectives you know in kind of battling their own demons in some ways whilst you know traversing a morally bankrupt city trying to do the right thing and again like it being just steeped in rain and fog and grayness you know that's all there are shots in this movie where sometimes if I rewatch it, I just pause it and go like, is that, that like, is that the image I would show someone to describe the film noir genre? I think it might be that like, like there's, there's one in particular, which always sticks in my mind. It's what it's when it's in a, a chase scene, sort of like, I guess sort of towards the end of the second act of the film when like they almost catch John Doe uh, and, uh, and he's just kind of like cloaked in like a trench coat and, and a hat the entire time. So, you know, you can't see his face. Yeah. But there's a there's a point where he almost you know, takes out Detective Mills, uh, Brad Pitt's character. And, you know, Mills is kind of just crawling in like the rain soaked ground and he kind of looks up. And there's just this low angle shot kind of looking up at, you know, this just this big looming dark figure of john doe and it's like the the gun barrel is kind of filling the front of the frame and you've just got like the rain flex kind of flying off it and just everything about just the atmosphere of that one shot just screams film noir, film noir to me and yeah, it's mm, beautiful stuff again film you know not always an easy film to watch um you know you definitely have to be in the right mood it's not one you can just casually pop on you know you, you yeah. have to have to prepare somewhat to watch seven um for both the content and for you know certain actors in it who we're not gonna talk about but <laughs> yeah yeah but uh but yeah obviously i don't know do you do you, do you have much do you have anything to, to add about seven it is you know 
<laughs> we watched Seven as part of like our course for uh, college many moons ago, and right. it was back when we were learning about like um, thriller-based movies and sure. uh, talking more about the psychological side of things. And um, that was the first time I saw it. So that was, I think, back in 2000... I want to say 2008. And... Okay that film definitely left an impact on me. Like, you know, was it, oh, yeah. I saw like, you know, all these actors in a different kind of way because I'd seen at least a number of their work. I'd say probably Morgan Freeman, the most out of the three of them, mm-hmm. but like, um, I'd never seen like, you know, was it, uh, thou shall not be named like in that kind of context beforehand. He was, it was very impressive in the movie. To be fair, and, actually, it's one of the few Kevin Spacey films I can still comfortably watch now because it's like, well, he plays a creepy bastard anyway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I guess it does like uh, it suits him. But it's not yeah. like I, I, it's not like the disconnect I have where you know if there's a film that tries to frame him in a favourable light, I'm like, mm, I'm, I'm less comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, like you know, it's, yeah, I can't watch Baby Driver in the same way anymore. Like. No. Uh, there's been like stuff coming out about the rest of the cast as well like baby driver the baby driver cast is cursed i swear yeah man like you know i was very surprised about ansel elgort as well yeah what's going on but yeah i'll save that conversation for another time yeah Um, Yeah. we'll move on to the final like you know pairing now like um for me my film is good old classic from the 1970s um don't look now um Now, I haven't seen this film, well, up until, like, uh, recently. I hadn't actually watched this film since I was in college. So, um, again, we're talking about 12-ish years. And the first time I watched it, I thought, firstly, I'd never seen Donald Sutherland so young before. Mm. Uh, Because Donald Sutherland is one of the sort of actors who has sort of become the same since about the late 90s, about the mid to late 90s, just with that slick back hairdo, and he was just like, you know, kind of white-haired for like the majority of time. Yeah. um, But if you go obviously a little earlier in his career, he had like a slightly different, like, you know, crazy curly hairdo. Yeah, Um, got the 70s not quite afro going on. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I forgot how crazy curly it was in this film, because I think he had a similar hairdo in um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is... uh, I believe so, yeah. One of my favorites, which I really want to talk about on this podcast at some point as well. Mm. But yeah, I didn't take to the film the first time. I thought it was strange. And again, this is the 18-year-old version of me. It's like, I thought it was very boring. So I was like, what is going on here? So fast forward 12 years, I have changed my perspective on a lot of films, especially films made within the 60s slash 70s period. Because films just tended to be a little bit more, um, they took their time with things a little bit more. There are certain filmmaking styles that, uh, you know, just just the way certain things are paced or, or even the way they're acted in some respects, you know, that, that, that do kind of immediately age it. It doesn't mean the film's inherently bad. No, yeah. Oftentimes um, the film is still very, very good. Like I rewatched uh, Rear Window recently. It's fantastic. It's very 1954. <laughs> oh, no, definitely. That's one of my favourites as well. I really enjoyed that one. But was the weirdly addition... relevant in lockdown, I have to say. Stuck, oh being, gosh, yeah. Being, being stuck in one room, kind of just being like, oh, what are all my neighbors doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, all I can see is just like you know, random like you know, neighbors in the back garden every once in a blue moon because a lot of people have been doing like DIY and like letting their kids hang around. And there's a lot of cats right. in my back garden as well for some reason. Right. <laughs> I mean, um, even even my you know my room actually the you know the window next to my desk and that kind of looks out over a bunch of my neighbors' gardens. So 
even even outside of lockdown times, I kind of feel like James Stewart in Rear Window. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Try yeah. not to spy on people, but you know, the mm. gardens are right there. <laughs> I know, I know, like stupid garden. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, with Dolan now, the interesting thing is there was a number of things I missed out on the first time, which just eluded me. Uh, specifically the um side of the story to do with uh second sight and like you know clairvoyance yeah at first i thought that was just um you know just random anomalies that had no explanation but because i was actually paying attention to the dialogue this time around so when um john's wife starts talking to like um those two ladies and the one who is like you know has the second sight and she mentions oh yeah you're um it's a gift from like you know god and not many people have it and your husband has it and i was just like oh oh of course okay so that makes sense now because during that initial point where he senses something's like you know going on like you know something's about to happen before like you know he runs outside and then like you know finds out his daughter's obviously like you know drowning in the lake i was like the first time why is he running outside what is he does he know something's happening but does this film address that i'm confused but now i'm actually mm. paying attention i'm like Oh, oh, okay. There's yeah, a little. That, it's a smart film. Like there are a lot of subtle details in there. Yeah, and I was um I was a lot more uh, receptive and impressed by like you know what's that whole concept because obviously you have films that deal with psychics and like you know mm. with clairvoyance and like you know tampering with like that that need not be tampered or you know something might happen and it's in case uh, it's whether the characters have the means to like you know intercept it or not and um just seeing like you know the film now with that knowledge and the way in which it sort of foreshadows certain dangers but in a way where it's still like um you're not sure how it's going to play out no or like yeah. um it's just like it was fascinating to me way more so than beforehand and um that first scene good lord it definitely leaves an impression the way in which it's oh, yeah. paced the uh, editing between like you know what's happening in the interior and exterior Everything just sort of has that sort of calm, nice, balanced flow to it, but there is a a feeling that something will happen, like, and not just because you're watching a film, but you can tell like there's some sort of almost impending doom happening. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, just the thing with the photograph, like, um, really took me the second time around as well, because when he spills, like, you know, was it that red liquid? Like, it was red liquid, right? Mm -hmm. I, I remember. Um, the way in which that sort of, like, you know, spills out. I don't know if I'm looking at symbolism in the wrong kind of way um, or I'm interpreting the wrong kind of way, but it looked like at one point it sort of spread but dried. So I was assuming that might just be the point where the that was just, like, an indication that, okay, the daughter is dead because it was spreading. But then once she had like, you know, was it sort of passed as he was trying to grab her at the lake, it was just like that stopped. So I was just like, Oh, I wonder if it stopped spreading because that means she's died. I don't know. Well, I was like, it's possible. It's yeah. But it was just interesting how like, you know, the film had subtle moments like that, where there was certain visual imagery that felt like it coalesced with what's happening. Like, you know, Oh yeah. And of course, by the end, everything just kind of comes full circle and you have oh, like that yeah. crazy, See, which truth be told like i mean don't look now is by and large seen as a horror film which um i would argue it is in many ways um but it's interesting like i i read an article uh, that that the av club uh released around a couple of years ago around the same time hereditary came out okay yeah. and, and they were comparing the two films in terms of uh you know how they tackle you know grief and cool. in in, in 
the trappings of uh, of the horror genre. And they raised an interesting point that like Don't Look Now in many ways might not even be you know might not even necessarily be considered uh, a horror film if if not for that final scene. Oh right, yeah. Which, yeah. which I kind of get that. Like it's it's I guess that's the uh, the difference between like the the more kind of the more traditional horror genre trappings and the more real life horror. You know? yeah, and, yeah. And and Don't Look Now kind of balances both. I feel very well. Uh, and again, I, I think similarly, I saw someone comment on YouTube at one point. Uh, the um, you know on that final scene. Um, I, I'm I'm paraphrasing, uh, but I think they said something to the effect of you know. When I watched this film when I was a kid, you know, I, th- I thought this was, I thought this scene was what made a horror film because, you know, it scared me. Um, I watched it as an adult. I realized the opening scene is where the real horror is. Yeah, and yeah. It's just like, yeah, yeah, I see that. It's, it kind of, yeah, in a sense, like a lot of the middle portion of the film is more of a kind of drama mystery in a way. It's it's almost like it's kind of bookended with, with two very different but kind of equally powerful you know horror scenes that kind of achieve slightly different things yeah yeah because there's um within the moments in uh was it um venice where they're like um out and about going about their daily lives and stuff um everything sort of just like becomes a little bit more chilled out a little bit more mellow there's really you know random things that happen like uh that one point where uh john's just like doing his architecture stuff but he's just naked and the maid comes in and then it's just like and then he just sort of just shoves it off and i'm like i wish i could be that casual about someone and like you know seeing me in the nude like <laughs> he don't care about that at all um um 70s but, don sutherland man he's uh he's got the confidence we all aspire to i guess yeah. <laughs> and um you know we have all these other random things like um besides uh john's wife meeting up with the ladies again you know we see them like just go about doing random bits and bobs um besides those random moments like say at night where um there was at one point where i was walking around in the dark and it was sort of like they got lost and there was just these random noises <laughs> happening in the dark and i'm just like oh criminy what is that <laughs> so i was like oh okay yeah i'm remembering what genre of film i'm watching right now yeah it's, it's like um it's almost like the film lulls you into like you know with it just this yeah sort of, uh, it sort of makes you forget its core genre for a while <laughs> yeah it's, and then it'll just give you the odd shock every once in a bit it's like mm-hmm. oh crap okay yeah, yeah yeah i need to keep my wits about me and then just the end where everything just sort of coalesces the and it starts and ends strong which is kind of the main thing i think yeah like a film can get away with like sagging a bit in the middle if it has a strong opening and a strong and a strong ending yeah and um the other bit again which rewatching it the second time like stood out to me so much more was uh when john was on that boat and he thought he saw his wife and the two women and i'm just like what wait no and then the end where it was actually like the funeral it's like oh my gosh wow i was yeah. just like that is uh, i was genuinely like you know just surprised and amazed i'm like that is really good shit <laughs> just some quality filmmaking there planting and payoff it's yeah it's all good all good stuff side note though um i do great film don't want to dispute that i do question uh john and laura's decision to uh you know recover from the drowning of their daughter by um taking a trip to a city built on water yeah i, I was <laughs> 
when I was watching this film, I'm like, so this is the choice you chose. This is the place you chose to go to, and you also left your son behind as well. Yes, you're you're constantly surrounded by water, which you'd think would be a massive trigger for you somehow. But and I'm just like, you guys have adjusted pretty well. You don't seem to be like too deterred yeah. about like uh, a lot of these things happening around yeah, you. They, they they do okay, you know, right down <laughs> to one of the, uh, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, kind of. Frank and you know like like explicit sex scenes that had been in the mainstream movie at that point yeah i actually yeah. forgot about that for a few minutes i was like oh yeah this is a thing isn't it <laughs> yeah i mean that like there were rumors floating around that that scene was you know unsimulated which obviously it wasn't but but mm. it's like you know in 73 like that that would have been like a that scene would have been a pretty big deal you know it's uh and you know, it even, you know, even kind of briefly depicts, you know, cunnilingus, which is, was, which is like entirely unheard of in, in for a mainstream movie at that time. Yeah, but, no, definitely. But, you know, so yeah, you know, yeah, but, you know, all things considered, you know, they seemed to have, you know, readjusted to married life pretty well. It was not to be, sadly. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I just kept saying to him, dude, you should have left. You you really should have just like taken the like lady's advice and just go go home. <laughs> mm. But now I want to hear about your uh, companion piece to my film. Yeah. So yeah, which is our last film of uh, of our lineup, I believe. Um, yes. So uh, so yeah, obviously we raised the point with uh, with Don't Look Now about how it starts and ends very strong. Uh, you know, it has in particular an opening that kind of immediately kind of go you know whoa you know it leaves an impact on you and almost kind of sets the tone for for you know what's to come in a way and so my pick in relation to that point is a bit of an obscure one um not a lot of people have probably seen it um i only saw it because through my volunteering at fright fest uh, you know the you know the london-based uh, genre movie festival and uh, and i saw this when it you know, had its premiere at Friday Fest back in 2017. It's a Brazilian movie. Her original title is Mal Nosso, which uh, translated to English is Our Evil. Uh-huh. And uh, it's the best way I can describe it without getting into spoiler territory is it's a serial killer movie that over time evolves into a sort of psychic slash demonic possession supernatural thriller. Ooh. and it's a hardcore film in parts i will say like uh, and again the opening scene it's sort of like right away it kind of like makes you stop and go oh wow okay that's what i'm in for um because uh, i can describe the opening scene i guess um but essentially you're briefly introduced to the main character he kind of you know wakes up moves around his house a bit yeah then cuts to him browsing on the dark web looking for serial killers for hire or, you know, assassins for hire. And he he watches a video from one of said assassins, which um, entails, you know, a woman handcuffed to bedposts and uh, a scalping. So, uh, so yeah. Ooh, <laughs> that's, the, that's the opening scene. And that's right off the bat. It's like... It's pretty hardcore. Like, like even you know, at the time, obviously, you know, volunteering at Friday Fest, which I have done the past three years. Um, this year's a little more 
<laughs> I doubt I'll be one chain this year. I believe it's uh, I believe they're hosting a digital festival instead, which you know not a bad idea. But um, you know the past three years, obviously I volunteered at Fright Fest. That was my first year going, and even like the fellow the fellow Fright Festers I discussed the film with, you know the few who had seen it, were going like, oh yeah, it's there's some strong stuff in there, and and it's like. Yeah, these are like sort of hardened horror movie nuts, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know, myself included to an extent. Yeah. Um, like watching this film and going like, holy shit. <laughs> and that's like, yeah. that's not the only disturbing scene in there. There's a particularly nasty one that, you know, the same serial killer and or assassin and like a couple of victims, also female. But um, yeah, that occurs, I want to say around 20 minutes in. It's, it's it's not pleasant um but uh it's an ambitious film though and it's one of the more genuinely like risky and ballsy kind of genre mashups i've seen and yeah. it mostly works like it's not perfect i will say um it sort of suffers from some of the things that a lot of indie films suffer from um whereby like it's a little bit too short some yeah. of the budgetary restraints are evident at times and the pacing does falter at certain points but overall i still rate it pretty highly um it's definitely not for everyone and it's much like i think most of the films i dare say pretty much all of the films we've discussed today it's not one that i could just sort of pop on casually and have a, and have a it's been like, i'll watch our evil you know some some light-hearted friday evening fair <laughs> nah it, it's it is not that it's you know, it's it's one that, you know, you watch if you're in the mood for a particularly out there, you know, sort of foreign horror movie, which I will say, like, um, world cinema, like places like Brazil, and uh, I love a lot of, like, Asian horror as well, like J-horror, and... Uh, uh, which I, I guess in a way you could you could call perfect blue jay horror <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in its own right. Um, but, um, you know, it's like, yeah, a lot of... Yeah, world cinema seems to be one of the more interesting places to go for genre films in general and horror movies in particular, because, like, I, I don't know if I'm just kind of too used to a lot of the tropes you see in, you know, kind of the more, like, Hollywood horror at this yeah. point. Even, like, British horror to an extent, which, like, you know, Britain, I will, you know, collectively pat Britain on the back uh, uh, and pat us on the back and say, you know, we've given, we've done, like, some of the best horror movies ever over the years you know don't look now uh the wicker man uh 20 days later you know we've we've cranked out some absolute bangers um but even british horror you know i'm sort of sort of become a bit too used to a lot of the tropes and styles same with yeah. you know, hollywood uh mainstream american horror movies you go to other countries and it's like okay this is entirely different and i'm into it <laughs> and it's and Again, it's the, it's the combination of that and, you know, again, sort of the indie film aesthetic, which, uh, you know, as said, you know, it does bring a few flaws to the table as well. Yeah. But at the same time, I find oftentimes budgetary restraints um, and, you know, being distributed independently, it, it kind of forces filmmakers, especially, you know, if, if it's a genre piece like a sci-fi or a horror or something similar you know it kind of forces filmmakers to be a bit more creative in how they tackle certain things 
like yeah, if they've got all if they got like a disney budget behind them then they'd just slap all the cgi they need on it but you know it's <laughs> but if you're if it's more niche if it if it and if it's more of a you know passion project in a sense then yeah you kind of have to take different approaches to it yeah yeah you know, to, to, to achieve you know the kind of disturbing and scary and out there content that you want to so even if the film's not perfect you know like there's you know there's i find with our evil in particular like there's a lot to admire in it again if it just if you're not into it based on what i've described so far understandable you know it, it's not one you know i've said i do really like it but it's not one i can watch loads uh i've seen i've seen it twice now but uh and yeah i think you know but in a sense that kind of you know encapsulates a lot of what we've you know talked about today like you know these are films that you know in one way or another you know take risks and push out subject matter and content and context in some case that you know might not necessarily be touched upon in something in something more sanitary and safe and commercial which you know i'm not, I'm not entirely you know crapping on hollywood you know there's yeah. a place for light-hearted entertainment too uh, oh, yeah, of course. we all need escapism mm-hmm. uh, but yeah like a lot of the films we discussed today like while they might not necessarily be easy to watch and they might you know leave you feeling a bit uncomfortable they're worth checking out because they offer something different they oftentimes offer something important and yeah there's just a lot you can take away from that i think oh no definitely that was wonderfully worded um all i'll add to that is that yeah these um these films like uh the ones that we discussed today present like uh just really interesting like a uh, story subject matter like certain character scenarios or even just filmmaking techniques that like you know you wouldn't associate with certain like mainstream cinema that while they're uncomfortable and like you know was it not necessarily like make for like the most positive like you know watching like you know viewing experience at the same time like um they're the kind of films that i believe you need to see just to get like a taste of like the different spectrum of like you know was it uh film experiences that one can take in but also just to see like uh cool and interesting takes that certain like you know was it uh filmmakers have with certain types of material that you wouldn't think to like you know was it you know give a go Mm. yeah absolutely all right and i believe that will be the end of that for the time being because initially when me and ross had this conversation we had at least a few other films on the uh, list that we could have talked about and i'm sure ross with your infinite knowledge like you know for the uh, horror genre we probably could have gone down a rabbit hole with this i don't know about infinite but i appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) um but obviously i only have so much time and so do you so i wanted to uh keep this as like you know content as possible and i think like we've had a decent time um i had like a podcast episode that go on much longer than this so i think we've come in at a decent time let's be fair um so yeah thank you for listening ladies and gentlemen hopefully like these uh the films that we've talked about today if you haven't given them a go and you did happen to avoid some of those spoilers or if you didn't care about the spoilers but were still interested in watching them i would highly recommend and if you do have anything to say about them i'd love to hear from you so if you'd like to like contact me like you know is it drop me a comment in the comment section below or hit me up on twitter where i'm at filmfocus55 or at the hypersonic 55 or via the email the hypersonic555 at gmail.com and 
once again, Ross, thank you for joining me for this. This has been super delightful to have you on as my fourth main guest on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me, man. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun, you know, despite more, you know, despite what we've been discussing. It's, uh, it's always good to have, uh, you know, to have someone to bounce thoughts off in regards to these kind of things. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, next time I join you, it'll be for something uh, a little more light and breezy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we've discussed a few other ideas, so I think we've got some other stuff in like the pipeline that will be a little bit more like uh, lighthearted for like the listeners. But um, before you go, if you just like to tell our listeners, uh, if you have any like you know places that you exist online, like where they can find you or check out your work. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, well, as said, I'm an aspiring film editor, and in, in you know that's the end game for me um don't anticipate being uh, comfortably established as a freelancer for a while but you know getting there um in the meantime you know i uh, i edited a trailer for an upcoming horror movie recently and uh i'm i've got a short film and a couple of other bits in the works so on my insta my instagram handle is um at rossmad underscore edits you can follow me there and keep track of sort of a balance of you know my day-to-day life and my editing work so if that sounds appealing to you it might not but i'm I'm there anyway um i have twitter i i use it sporadically but i am at rostermad um r-o-s-s-t-e-r-m-a-d um uh, i can get a bit more political there so uh, <laughs> so you know do with that what you will uh, i'm also on letterboxd uh, if you want to see my thoughts on you know whatever i've been watching recently and uh, my letterbox handle is ross madison 6306 so yeah that's about all of my bases really well thank you for contributing as always and like uh be sure to give ross uh show show him some love and like show him some support like i've seen some of his edits on like you know what's it some of the uh stuff you've done for your um I think you showed me like uh, some of the trailers that you worked on at one point, and I think was it maybe your showreel you showed me at one point as well. I think I've, I've, I've had a few showreels over the years, so, so I've seen so, at so least that, so one that's very possible. <laughs> but yeah, no, like um, your work looks clean, man. So like uh, oh, I appreciate I that. Seeing what else you've got yeah in the pipeline maybe that's why i'm so uh maybe my editing trade is why i'm so desensitized to a lot of hardcore content you know watching scenes i mean in particular at the minute i'm editing a film about uh you know mental health so it's Ooh. uh so yeah you know despite how heavy and you know emotionally it might get it's like yeah you you, you watch it back enough times and you just feel nothing so <laughs> i don't know in a, in a sense there's you know debatable how good a thing that is but you know allows for a certain level of objectivity yeah yeah yeah. i mean like (laughs) once you get into the world of video editing like you know the amount of repetition that's involved in there you kind of just have to like you know get into that mindset of like you know just accepting what's happening on screen and just you know take it all in because otherwise like you know is it you're not going to (laughs) survive yeah i leave it to my director to you know have an emotional response to it (laughs) yeah (laughs) All right, well, I think that's going to do it for another episode of Film Focus. Thank you for listening, as always, ladies and gentlemen. And um, until the next time, this is the HyperSnow 55 with Ross signing out. Peace. Farewell.